Well, good morning. Welcome here. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. My name is Jeremy Lobdell. And uh, if you're joining us online, welcome. We're so glad that you are engaged with Midland Free, even in this unusual day and age that it is. If you're here, thank you so much for coming. We're glad you're here. We're doing everything we can to make it a safe and good environment for you. Um, I have a question to start us off today. And I believe it's a simple question, so feel free to shout it out. It only has one answer, but if you guess something wrong, no big deal. We'll get over it. But here's my question. Are you ready? Okay, my question is, does anyone happen to know the single best selling book in the history of the world? The Bible. You got it exactly right. In fact, in this Business Week magazine that I looked at, it said that there were over 2.5 billion copies of the Bible published. That was at the time of writing. I'm sure there's more now. But um, there are some big books and monumental books, but the Bible is, in fact, the biggest book. Anyone have a guess as to what number two is? I bet there's probably a few people in our congregation who will get this, but they don't speak English. Or it's a second language. The second most selling book, or the biggest, most published book in the history of the world? Thoughts of Chairman Mao. Thoughts of Chairman Mao are number two. And number three, for all you kiddos out there, or your, you preteens or tweens or whatever they call it now, what is the next one? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Exactly right. You got it. Three different books, lots of copies, but far and away the biggest winner is the Bible. Over a period of 1,600 years with 36 different authors and 66 different books, this book has been called, well, by Mary Blanche, or Blanche Mary Kelly, the most stupendous book, the most sublime literature, even apart from its sacred character in the history of the world. Scientist by the name of Sir Isaac Newton says this, no sciences are better attested than the religion of the Bible. Another scientist and astronomer named Galileo says, I believe the intention of the Holy Writ was to persuade men of the truths necessary to salvation, such as neither science nor other means could render credible, but only the voice of the Holy Spirit. A president, many presidents have referenced the Bible, but this one in particular I chose today. President Abraham Lincoln says the Bible is in fact the best gift that God has given to man. How about a philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant? He says the Bible is the greatest benefit which the human race has ever experienced. Indeed, one of God's own, Isaiah the prophet, says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Listen, when we read the Bible on Sunday morning and I close by saying, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, I mean it. Every bit of it. We at Midland Free, we aspire to be a gospel-centered family where everyone we encounter moves closer to Jesus every day. And there's absolutely no way we can do that without the Bible. That's why our mission is 
is to enjoy and glorify God and embrace his word. We're going to look at that next section in our mission this morning. In particular, we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. It's the third chapter of Paul's second letter to his protege or son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little context or background on that. It's, it's actually a very important point in Paul's career. If you're familiar with Christianity and the church, you've probably heard of the Apostle Paul. Even if you aren't, you may have. And this guy has had quite the run. I mean, up until this point, he's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been beaten. He's even been stoned. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about like with rocks. Okay, this guy's been there. He's done that. He has had an incredible, wild, difficult, long, wild and woolly life. And coming to the very end, he's beginning to look back and remember some things. And he has this son, this son in the faith, this, this disciple, this guy he's super duper curious about, his heart is for. And the apostle is going to write him this letter because he knows he's at the end. He's in fact in prison. Most likely in Rome, and he's expecting to be killed. And so these are the Apostle Paul's last words. In the next couple pages, you get the great Apostle's final thoughts to his son. What would that be for you? If you were laying on your deathbed and you got one pencil and two pieces of paper and this is your chance to write to the ones you care about the most your last words and the most significant things you think you could say for their life what would it be? Incidentally, have you written that letter? You might want to. You never know. I'm just saying. but I'm not trying to bother you or anything, but it's a good thing. It's special to have that letter. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to his son. He says this. In, well, actually, we'll start in chapter 3, but let me just say, we're going to get the bulk of the um, content at the end of chapter 3. But at the beginning, there's this long list. And so we're going to read through that list, but I'm going to really focus on the latter verses. And the reason I want to read the front is because he starts out in verse 10, and he says, you, however, and we don't know what that contrast is unless we read the previous verses. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 9 just for the sake of understanding the context, and we'll focus in on 10 and following. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Amen? Amen. We know the word is true. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. Wow, does that sound like what I'm seeing on the news? Disobedient to the parents? No way. 
ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. USA. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, you, however, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for in training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what I'd like to do today, as I've said, is talk about our new vision and mission, but not just in isolation, but in connection to what God has already said. In particular, that we should embrace his word. And so we're going to do that in two different steps in an application this morning. The first step, if you're taking notes, this is point one. This is the main heading of the first section, is that God's word comes from God. Exactly right. The first one, the first point, the big, deep theological point I have is that it is from God. The second is that it is life-giving. So first, from God Second, life-giving. And then third, we'll get to an application in just a second. From God and life-giving. Now let me talk first about the word embrace, because as I say that word, it kind of brings a little chuckle to my mind, because I remember the discussion or debate we had among the elders as to which word we should choose in this section. And we went back and forth for a long time. And basically the reason is this. Some of those guys in that room, they're not too cuddly. And so they didn't really like the word embrace. They're like, that's a little too warm, touchy-feely. I'm not so sure about that, Pastor Jeremy. Can we back off that just a little bit? And we went back and forth, and we tried other words, and they just didn't work. And we came back around to this one. And the point is this, is we're looking for a word here that you can really hold on to, that you can say, the Bible is something that's not just to be like set on a shelf 
It's not even something just to be read, but it's something to internalize. It's something to appropriate for oneself. It's something that you want to become a part of you, like to be bonded with it, to think that way, to be that way, to feel that way, to process things through its grid. You don't want it just to be this book that you read in isolation and set it down and then go away from, but you want to hold on to it with all of your heart and all of your soul and mind, just like a life preserver in the middle of a tsunami. You want to grab that thing and embrace it because this is your life-giving source of truth. So we ended up with that term, and that's what we mean by that. And so let's get into the text, and let me show you a little bit more about how that plays out in our life. Number one, it is from God. It is from God. The original Greek word here in verse 16, remember I'm dropping to the end. Go back to 16. Is theonumatos. Whoa, theonumatos. What we're saying is this. You've probably heard little kiddos named Theo. Theo means God. It's a Greek word for God. You may have even heard the term called theology or theology, the study of God. So when Paul uses this term right here, what he's saying is theonumatos. Numa is wind or breath. He's saying it is God breathed. That this thing came out of God. It didn't exist in and of itself, but it flows from him. He is its source. And as such, Everything that is written in this word should be considered from God. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, the reason is, is because what that does for us and what that does for the rest of the world is it claims an absolute authority. That there is some source, some truth, some objective, concrete, factual reality that sits above everything else. If there really is a God, and if that God has actually said something, then what he has said is the very most important and authoritative thing on the face of the planet. And thus, people try so hard to get rid of this divine authority within the authorship of scripture to contradict it or to make it conflict with itself or to prove it wrong because if we can do away with scripture then we can do away with god and we are our own self-governing individual autonomous units but because there is a god then there is someone who sits over and above all of us and our opinions and our feelings and our experiences and everything else and that whole concept or idea that your truth is my truth and my truth is whatever is completely awash. And what it says instead is that there is one truth and that truth has a divine authorship or source and that is God. It is the plumb line, the gold standard, the measure of all things. It is like a laser level. And if anything doesn't fit with that, We need to tear it up and throw it out. That's a big deal. Because in our society, that's not the way it works. You know, I've already mentioned that. But one way I like to think of it or say it is this. Either you will adjust your behavior to fit the Bible. Or you will adjust the Bible to fit your behavior. You'll do one of the other. Either you will intentionally conform to this book or you'll start saying, well, this doesn't mean this or that doesn't mean that or I don't agree because of here and I've actually felt and and, you know what I'm thinking is, no, 
This is from God, and it sits over and above all of us, and it is the final standard for everything. It is theonumatos. Theonumatos means that when it came about, yes, human beings wrote it, but it wasn't them writing their own ideas or biases or opinions or perspectives, but it was God himself coming to these individuals through the power of his Holy Spirit and going, and breathing it into existence, making it alive, such that it's not just words on a page, but this is supernatural, magical, powerful, living, sharp, and real. So that when you begin to say these things, they don't just sit there, but they come alive. They're, they're, they cut, they do, they encourage, they conform. It's so different. From other books, you know, some people who want to attack the Bible will say, for example, Marx, oh, religion is just the opiate of the masses. Actually, that's the thoughts of Chairman Mao, written to control the masses. Well, it's just there to entertain people. Actually, that's Harry Potter. The Bible is the anumatos. It is God-breathed. It's from a totally different source. It's not human. It is divine. And therefore, anyone who, comes from, anyone who comes from that perspective, I believe it's really a heart issue and not an intellectual issue. You can argue intellect all day long, but the heart issue is, are you actually going to believe there's a God, and are you willing to submit to him? And if you are, then you have to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And unless you can come to that point, you're probably never going to believe the Bible. That's what it demands that you do. So here's this book. It is from God. And that's how outsiders may condemn it, but insiders get it wrong too. A lot of people I hear walking around say things like, well, it's a rule book for life. Like, well, is it? I mean, yeah, it's got some commands and things we should do, but, you know, like a rule book, I I don't know, I've got this instruction manual for my weed eater. I think I read it once, maybe. It's in like eight different languages. I got the thing started and I threw it away or burned it or something. I don't know. doesn't matter. It's not a part of me. I can do what I want. Okay, it works. I'll never come back to that unless I have a problem. Oh, wait. Is that how we treat the word? We shouldn't because it's more than a rule book. It's more than an instruction manual. It's closer to art. And what do I mean by that? Well, You've probably heard of some very expensive paintings, like in the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Surely these people think they're investments, but pure art lovers see intrinsic or inherent value in the art itself. So they value it just because it is, because it is beautiful, because there is something inherent or intrinsic to it that stands out to them. And they say, wow, that reflects an amazing artist. Look at what that points to. That is so beautiful. I can't pick up that painting and go to Walmart and purchase something with it. I can't get into it and let it take me somewhere. I can't use it to fix my car or do anything else. There is nothing I can do with that work of art. So don't reduce the Bible to something that has to be pragmatic. That's called pragmatism. And we say it's only valuable if it helps me. 
No, that's narcissism, that's ethnocentrism, that's me first, I'm the best, nothing else matters but that, and that's wrong. The Bible, in and of itself, even if we never agreed with it, listened to it, or believe it, still has value. Because it's God's word. It flows from him. And who is he? He is majestic. He is beautiful. He is wonderful. He is gracious. He is loving. He is all-powerful. He is God. And if this is from that artist, if he is the source, then it reflects that. It is not just an instruction manual. It's not a magazine. It's not a rule book. It's not a political treatise. It's not anything else. It's theonumatas. God breathed. This is power, magic, beauty, strength, life. It is something you embrace, digest, internalize, become part of, that unites you to him. This is the work of the spirit. (laughs) Some people ask me, hey, do you believe in the work of the spirit? So, oh yeah, there's 66 books of it. This is God's. It is valuable in and of itself. So what have I just said? I've said, number one, that the Bible is from God. The Bible is from God. If that is the case, then what's that mean? It means that it is perfect, it is timeless, and it is powerful. It is authoritative. It's from him. Number one, we should embrace the word because it's from God. Number two, it's life-giving. I've already been saying this, but let me show you how important this is if you don't realize this already. Verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Indeed. Oh, wait, let me ask you a question. Don't read it. Quick, close your eyes. How many of you want to be godly? Okay, I got a verse for you. Verse 12. Indeed. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I wish I could have read that text a little bit differently. But as goes the shepherd, so too the sheep. And you know what? Jesus was hated before he was even born. Herod wanted to kill him from the get-go. Jesus' parents had to run for his life. He was hated from the moment he was born all the way to the cross. For indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I think we Americans living in our cushy, posh, comfy society... I'm over-exaggerating. There's bad stuff, no doubt. But you get the point. We think we can have our cake and eat it too. Like this is a you know free country. We get to enjoy um, freedom of expression and religion and da-da-da-da-da. So perhaps that persecution stuff just for people over there, you know, like super saints and apostles and missionaries. But not for me. Oh, wait. What does it say? All. I don't need a Greek word to explain that one. All. You have a bad day, what do you think it means? Well, it could be something we brought on ourselves, or it could be something else. 
At some point, if you desire to follow Jesus, you will face resistance. That's a biblical promise. Here's one of those promises for your promise Bible. All will be persecuted. It's important to bring us to this point because otherwise we don't see the value of what will pull us out. And that's what we're talking about with embracing the word, the thing that gives us life, that sustains us, that pulls us through this. If you look at verse 17, it says, so that, here's scripture, so that we may be equipped and complete so we can face these terrible experiences that are guaranteed to come our way. This is the thing that breathes, God breathing life into you. If you're feeling worn out, if you're feeling down, I can probably diagnose what's missing. You need more life breathed in. You need more spirit. You need the word. Now, verse 11 was probably, well, verse 11 and maybe verse 14. But verse 11 especially was probably the most impactful verse of my entire week. This blew me away. You ready? Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Get it? Maybe not. Let me... Let me unpack that just a little bit more. Verse 11 says, My persecutions and sufferings happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Why is that so significant, Pastor Jeremy? Well, let me just give you a little bit of what happened in Acts. At Antioch, the Apostle Paul, now remember, he's at the end of his journey, okay? So he's like, he's not, he's in a, jail cell he's expecting to die and these are the three things he mentions to timothy antioch iconium and lystra well okay what happened there well i looked back up and i saw that in antioch he was expelled he was kicked out that doesn't seem so bad that's not like the shipwreck and snake bite but he didn't say anything about that here what's up well don't raise your hands but how many of you ever felt lonely isolated There's something powerful about that, isn't there? We're we're human beings. We're created to be in community. And yet when we go into an experience where we're rejected, it hurts. And after all of his adventures, this is one that he comes back to. And when he hears that very word, it's like a bomb going off in his soul. Antioch. Oh, I remember that. Man, that hurt. Oh, that was not a good day. My persecutions, my sufferings, the things I've endured, Antioch. Boom. Loneliness and isolation, it hurts. What about the next one? Iconium. Iconium, what happened there? Well, there was a plot to take his life. How many of you have ever had somebody else out to get you? And maybe it's not just one person, but it's more than one. And you feel surrounded and you're in trouble and you don't know where to go. The apostle remembers this and is like, man, that was a bad day. He survived, but it was not fun. And then finally at Lystra, what happened at Lystra? This is where he was stoned. And it was one of those situations where the mob, I mean mobs, not like friendly, nice, neat little execution. We're talking mobs, just 
angry people jumping on him and throwing rocks at him and trying to kill him, leave him on the ground, bleeding, and in their minds, dead. They think he's done. They've finished the job. His disciples, his followers, come to gather up what remains. And all of a sudden, he stands up. And he turns around and goes back into the city. Like, hang on, man. (laughs) Here's your sign. I'm no political scientist, but I think you just got voted out. (laughs) I wouldn't go back that way. They're not too fond of you. Are you sure? Here's your sign, man. What's going on? And yet Paul, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the faith of Jesus Christ, turns around and walks right back into it. Wow. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, those persecutions, he said, I endured, and yet... The Lord rescued me from them all. Now, perhaps this is one of the things the Lord was doing in my life to stir this thought in me, but there's a song on the radio right now by Jen Johnson called The Goodness of God. It's from Bethel Music. I don't necessarily endorse her theology, but it is a great song. It takes Psalm 23, and it expresses it in an artistic way, and it demonstrates this reality of Christ followers that God's goodness is pursuing us. Even when like what's ahead of us looks dark, that there is something behind us chasing us down that's actually good. His goodness pursues us. And I was listening to the song. I was driving to work one day and I was seeing all these images flash across my mind like these, you know, sort of uh, these screenshots, if you will, like boom, there's one, boom, there's another. And I could think about all these times where we thought, me, my family, myself, and I, we thought we were done. Like, this is it. It's over. We've lost. There's no hope but God. And I can say those words like, Don Miller's farm, Dallas, La Plata, Abbotsford, Timber Creek, Sarold's Pop, Swatsky. And she knows what they mean, but you don't. But there's a lot there. We got like four or five words. Even if I got hit by a car and half of me was gone, I'd remember those. And my guess is, you've got those two. There's two or three words that you can say them and nobody else knows, but they are huge. They hit the ground of your soul with such gravitas. There is no other word like it. For Paul, it's Antioch. Iconium and Lystra. Boom, boom, boom. And he comes to those and he sees those pictures. Maybe someone's screaming, standing over the top of him right before he passed out. And then he says, yet, surely goodness, surely goodness and love will follow us. All the days of our life. From them the Lord rescued me.
Can you say that this morning? The Lord rescued me. I think you actually can. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Like every single one of us in this room could probably say that. More times than we even know. Older we get, the more we realize it. But I bet when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to be like, all right, how'd it go? And I'm, well, there's Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He's like, hang on, (laughs) there's more. (laughs) You got to see all the places I saved you from. (laughs) Whoa, I had no idea. Man, I haven't even been around that long, and I've seen it in my kids' lives, and they definitely haven't been around that long. Hit trees, had seizures, yada, yada. Wow. And then we look, and what we see is, as with the shepherd, so too the sheep. You see, Christ, we call our crucified and risen Savior. And I know we like to focus on the latter part, because that's the better, but don't forget the former. Don't forget the first. When the apostles first find him, doubting Thomas wants to touch him, and Jesus shows him his scars. Even in his glorified and resurrected and absolutely perfected, painless state, Jesus still had scars. That is profound. Christ will always be our crucified and risen Lord. We will get to see those scars. That his pain actually became a part of who he was. And it's not just accidental, but it's intentional. For Jesus to be our savior, he had to be crucified. It was necessary day. It must happen. And so if it is necessary for Jesus to suffer, to be the savior, then it means it is necessary for us to suffer to be saints. Christ suffered to be the savior. We have to suffer to be saints. Indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what then do we do? When things are going from bad to worse, we go to scripture. We go to God. In verse 17, it says, this is where you get your life. This is where you get your sustenance. This is where you get your encouragement. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Indeed, Mr. Lincoln, you were correct. This book is the best gift that God has given to man. It is from him. It is authoritative. It has character. It has value. And it is life-giving. Embrace it. Whether you're a child or an adult, embrace it. Let me give a little application to the children because I know you guys are sitting here. Listen up, kiddos. This is for you. Um, How can you embrace the word? I could probably ask you, and you might shout it out, but um, that could be fun. But I'll try it some other day. How could you embrace the word? Here's an example. One is, listen to your Sunday school teacher. Come come fellowship with us here at 11 o'clock at Midland Free. Our teachers work hard to present to you the gospel through the gospel project. Come, come be a part of that. If you're not comfortable with that, pay attention to what's coming out in your email. Ask your parents questions. We got a question the other day, my wife and I, and we were stumped. 
Your kids are going to stump you adults. Kids, try it. Go for it. Have fun with it. Ask them a Bible question and see if they can get there. And if they can't, then they need to look it up or they need to try harder. And if maybe your parents aren't Christians, and what, what might that do? I know that there are parents who have come to our church because their kids start asking them questions and they don't have the answer. They're like, I don't know. Let's bring them to church. Maybe they know. That's legit. Kiddos, ask questions. One of mine asked me the other day, hey, Dad. I said, yeah. I think the book of life is better than the Bible. I say, what? I think the book of life is better than the Bible. Why is that? Well, because if your name's written in the book of life, then you have eternal life, but not necessarily the case if it's written in the Bible. (laughs) I'm going to work through that a little bit. Well, how'd you learn about the book of life? Well, from the Bible, but... Doesn't mean we have all the answers, kiddos, but feel free to ask. It's good. We need you to ask. Adults, how can you embrace the word? Well, obviously you can read it, but some of us are readers and some of us aren't. I mean, there's a wide variety. I'm not asking you to be a PhD, you know, literature person or whatever, but whatever is appropriate to you, whatever level, whatever amount, start there. If it's like a verse, just read a verse. Whatever you can get in, take it in, because something is better than nothing. If you need to get a picture Bible that you just look at the pictures because you're visual, do that. Do something. Do anything. If you need more help, join a small group. Now, there's some specific groups that we have our church. Like, for example, our small churches. Being in fellowship with other believers can enlighten you and strengthen you and encourage you. And you hear that around you and it becomes more and more part of you. That's a good thing. Among the community, we have Bible study fellowship and community Bible study. If you're not plugged into one of those, maybe you travel a lot, you've got Radio, podcast, internet, etc. There are all kinds of ways for you to engage in a way that's meaningful to you. Anything is better than nothing. Start somewhere. Do something. Please embrace God's word. This is not for me. This is for you. This is what will give you life. This is what will strengthen you. This is what will help you cope in the hard times. God's word. Now, with all of that said, a short application and then we'll conclude. And it's this. I'm going to give you a chance to look in your Bibles for just a moment. And I'm going to ask you this question. Throughout all of chapter 3, there's actually only one command. There's only one command in chapter 3. You know, if it's dad's in his last words, you expect all these commands. There's only one. What is it? Take a look. See if you can figure it out. Chapter 3, what's the one command, 2 Timothy 2.3, that the apostle gives? Raise your hand if you think you got it. Somebody got it? What is it? Keep going. A little bit further. Yes, sir, and back. That's actually not a command. Look at verse 14. But as for you, continue. Believe it or not, this is the only command, command, imperative in this section. Continue. Continue. 
Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. Timothy, continue. But dad, it doesn't work. I mean, I've tried it and I've failed. Continue. But I'm not, I'm not where I want to be. It's not working fast enough. Continue. But everybody else around me is doing something different. Continue, Timothy. Ah, but I feel like such a failure when I read it and realize all the things I should be doing, but I'm not. Continue. See, the path is littered with people who've quit or stopped or bailed out along the way, but the one command the apostle gives to his son at the very end of his life is continue. Hang in there. Don't quit. Don't give up. Never stop. Yes, you will face persecution. Yes, you'll have those moments. Continue. It is the anumatos. It is from God. It is life-giving. Embrace it. We at Midland Free, we aspire to be this gospel-centered family where everyone we encounter moves closer to Jesus, but there is no way we can do that unless we embrace his word. What's the bottom line bullet point summary that I'm trying to tell you today? Man, own it. Embrace it. Take it for yourself in whatever quantity or measure or way that you can. Get into it. And the more the better. And when you do, continue. Continue, 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 and don't quit. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus, the word made flesh. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who works in our lives, who takes his written word and makes it alive in us and changes us and feeds us and grows us. Lord, I ask that you'd forgive me for my sin. You forgive us for our sin. Forgive our community. Forgive our nation. Lord, um, redeem our world. Something you promise you'll do, and we know that there's a lot of steps to go through first. And the process is long. The road is hard. The way is narrow. But you are light, and you're with us. And so I pray, God, now more than ever, just to hear our prayers. Be with us. Bless our lives. Change our hearts. And may we stay faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.